It's time for this week's edition of the Virtual Bible Study. The Virtual Bible Study is a live, internet-only call-in program dedicated to the honest study and discussion of God's Word. Do you have a question about something in the Bible? Or are you simply interested in learning more about the Scriptures? If so, we hope you'll stay tuned tonight as we look into the pages of God's Word. The Virtual Bible Study is brought to you this time each week by the College View Church of Christ in Columbia, Tennessee. You can participate in the discussion tonight by calling 93 93- 3-1-381-4567 or by emailing your questions or comments from collegeview.com. We hope you'll take out your Bibles and study along with us as we begin an exciting study of God's Word on this edition of the Virtual Bible Study. And we're back. Welcome to this week's edition of the Virtual Bible Study. This is the Virtual Bible Study for Thursday, May fifteenth, two 2008. Thank you for being a part of this broadcast We look forward to your participation. You can do so in a couple of ways, by emailing your questions or comments to questions at collegeview.com or by calling us on the phone toll-free at 877-381-4567. My name is Jacob Gwynn. My father, my co-host is here, Greg Gwynn. Hello, Dad. Jacob, good to be with you tonight on the Virtual Bible Study. As always, we always look forward to our Thursday night uh, Internet Bible Study group, and we're glad for all who participate. And joining us again in the studio tonight, Anthony Petrochko is here. Hello, Anthony. Welcome back. Hi. Thanks. It's uh, good to be here. And it's good to hear your voice again. And uh, we have an interesting broadcast planned for tonight, Dad. Last week, we were discussing the top ten doctrines that people hate from the Bible. We had a plethora of doctrines, really, that we talked about, and we got into the fact that if the Bible teaches something that requires us to change our life, that is hated by many people. Rather than submitting, we decide that we want to hate that doctrine, try and wiggle and squirm and get away from having to submit to what God wants from us in his word. We got an email from a gentleman named Eric, and he wanted to uh, challenge that concept, Dad, and uh, he sent us a list of things that we want to talk about tonight. That's right. Uh, our, our listener, Eric, and we, we certainly appreciate Eric. We're glad that he listens. We're glad that he was willing to participate in the program. He sent us a list of things. Now, he obviously doesn't agree with us about much. And so instead of writing a list of top ten most hated Bible doctrines, which we were discussing last week, he wrote us a list, 16 things that the Church of Christ hates about the Bible. That's what his list was. And so we decided that it would be worthwhile to talk about his list instead of rushing through it last week right near the end of the program. We said, hey, let's just save that, and we'll talk about it this week. Because really... I hope that we can demonstrate we don't hate anything that the Bible teaches. We're just trying to follow the Bible. We're trying to understand it and do what it teaches. So I'm glad to take Eric's list and talk about it to discuss what we really believe the Bible teaches and how we feel about that. By the way, Jacob, we've sent that list out a couple times to those on our email update list. And so many of you will have already had that in your email inbox. But if you have not received those emails and you're not familiar with this list that Eric sent in that we're going to be discussing tonight on the program, if you if you look at our website page, if you look at the page, in fact, where you clicked on to listen to the live audio stream tonight, we have posted that list there so you can follow along. We're going to be referring to it point by point, and you may want to go there and look at the list so you can see what we're talking and about. And you'll leave that up, I imagine, for the rest of the week. If you're listening to this in the archive version and we're not live, you can still look there on our website, collegeview.com or thevirtualbiblestudy.com to find out Eric's 16 things that he thinks we hate about the Bible. And uh, one of our listeners, Dad, I believe, uh, maybe Jim up in Somerset, Kentucky, said, if you're going to be a Christian, you can't hate anything about the Bible. And so we need to make sure that we don't hate the things that Eric's mentioned, and we'll hopefully find out tonight whether or not we do. Well, Jim in Somerset also said, if if Eric's talking about the Church of Christ in the denominational sense, he said, I I can't address that because I'm not a member of a Church of Christ denomination. If he means any one of the local congregations from city to city that are made up of individual Christians who've banded together to make a local church and work together as the churches of the first century did, uh, he he says, if that's what he's referring to, then how would he know? He says, I was under the impression these churches are autonomous, so how would one be able to characterize what them, what all of them alike believe or teach? You know, Just take one broad brushstroke and talk about them all. Uh, I, I think that makes a good point. I mean, Eric doesn't, Eric can't speak to what churches of Christ believe, because churches of Christ are local and independent and autonomous. We do not have a national or worldwide headquarters stating a creed or a position for us on various topics. And therefore, any local congregation might 
have a different view on any subject. We can't speak for what churches of Christ in general believe. All we can speak about is what we ourselves understand the Bible to be teaching. So we'll be talking about ourselves tonight. We won't be talking about what some other uh, group of uh, people who might wear the name Church of Christ would believe. Because We'll be talking about ourselves and we'll be comparing what we believe with what Eric thinks we believe and what the Bible teaches and make sure we don't really care that we line up with what Eric teaches. We would we would like that. Jesus wants us to all be in unity and have harmony, but we really care about what the Bible teaches and making sure we align to that because if we all align to what the Bible teaches and we all by default be in harmony, we'll be in harmony with Eric. Eric will submit to what the Bible teaches as well. That's right. Uh, yeah. I, I misattributed that uh, comment to, to uh, Jim a minute ago. It was actually from Stephen in Pennsylvania. He said, I'll try my best to answer Eric's questions without being too lengthy. I don't know what uh, supposed Christians that Eric is referring to when he List 16 different things that Christians hate about the Bible. I do not know of anyone who would hate anything about the Bible, and if they do, then they certainly would not be a Christian. Uh, he said, I will say Eric is simply wrong about making generalizations about individual Christians. How does he know what I like or hate? The only possible way he can know that is if he could get inside my brain or I would tell him what I was thinking. And so uh, Stephen makes similar comments. Yeah, and our friend Jim in Mount Pleasant, Tennessee, has said, you know, on the idea of of Stephen said, you know, that Jesus didn't give commands. He basically just gave us the instruction to love. And Jim and Somerset said, well, I mean, excuse me, Jim and Mount Pleasant said, if there's no commandments that we have to follow, then it wouldn't matter if we, the Church of Christ, set a standard. Since there is no standard, it will not matter if we set one or not. If we set one and say that others are wrong when they really aren't wrong, then that shouldn't upset Eric or anybody else because it won't matter what we say because no one, including us, would be wrong. Uh, so he's basically saying, you know, if you don't believe there's any standard, which is basically what Eric started out saying last week, then it wouldn't matter if somebody else was trying to impose a standard or live by a standard. If there is no standard, then you can set a standard. If there is no standard, we should go um – we, that, there'd be chaos in the streets, Anthony. Uh, you, after after we get done with this program, I'm going to drag you out in the street. I'll beat you up if there's no standard. And, Sounds good to And me. Eric won't be able to say anything <laughs> about it if uh, if right. I'm pummeling you, and he just have to let, sit there and watch it. Right. We also got an email from James up in uh, Belleville, Indiana, who wrote, uh, and we'll get to number 15 on Eric's list. He's, but there he said, uh, Peter said that Paul wrote some things hard to be understood, but he also tells us why they're hard to understand and what happens in the hands of those of, of certain individuals. He said, they which are unlearned and unstable rest as they do the other scriptures to their own destruction. He's, so basically, James is saying, if we want to twist the scriptures, we can make them confusing and difficult to understand, but it doesn't have to be that way. All right, let's get to the list. We only have a couple of minutes for each one now. Uh, so we have 16 things we want to talk about. We have to go fast. Number one on Eric's list, he says that the Church of Christ, and he'd be talking about you and I, Dad, and Anthony, he thinks that we hate the fact that Jesus never told us to follow a book or collection of books. Anthony, did Jesus tell us to follow a book or collection of books? I think he did. I think by implication, uh, you know, I think what Eric is trying to, you know, he's he's kind of trying to, uh, you know, say, well, you don't have a, a book, a chapter and verse that, that maybe that says where Jesus says follow a collection of books. But I think we, we can still deduce that we still have that, that instruction. All right. We got Jason from Pennsylvania. We're, by the way, we've got we've had a lot of people write in a lot of good stuff and spend a lot of time composing responses to these positions that uh, Eric has espoused. And we're not going to be able to read them all tonight, but we sure do appreciate the good scholarship that is represented in many we'll of these. We'll try to get to as many as we can. Uh, that's we right. We appreciate all of them. Uh, Jason in Pennsylvania said, "Jesus, in regards to the fact Jesus never told us to follow a book or collection of books, what Jesus did say to his apostles was, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And, lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age, Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20. So he told the disciples to go out and teach and teach them, notice, to observe all things. Everything that Jesus commanded, they were supposed to teach those things. And the apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 37, If any man think himself to be a prophet or spiritual, let him acknowledge that the things I write unto you are the commandments of the Lord. So Jesus said, teach them, teach them to deserve everything I told you. Paul said when we wrote as inspired apostles, we wrote the commandments of the Lord. So there are writings, a compilation of writings, in fact, of the inspired apostles and prophets that tell us 
what Jesus wanted us to do, the commandments of the Lord. He wants us to follow these. Randy in Jackson, Missouri says uh, Jesus did tell us to follow his commands, which have to be all included in the New Testament books. Scott says Jesus quoted Moses when he was tempted. He quoted the prophets when he gave credence to the story of Jonah. He condemned the religious leaders of his day for being like their fathers, that is, persecuting the prophets. And therefore, Scott would allude to the fact that Jesus was telling people of his day that they needed to be following a collection of books. Marcus said in first in John chapter eight, verses thirty one and thirty two, Jesus said, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. In verse thirty two, he calls the word truth uh, that can set a person free. The books of the Bible are made up of the words of Jesus, all scriptures given by the inspiration of God, second Timothy chapter three, verses sixteen and seventeen. James here in Columbia, Tennessee said Jesus said his word would judge us, John twelve, verse forty eight. He also said that his apostles would be told what to teach, John 16, verse 13. So the apostles were taught what to teach, and his word will judge us. That would make you think that there's a written standard whereby we are to obey. There is a collection. Now, understand, when he says Jesus never told us to follow, they didn't have books when Jesus lived. They wrote on scrolls, on pieces of paper. They didn't have bound books. That's a new thing. But there, what we're saying is there. There is a compilation of writings that constitute the commandments of the Lord, and we're expected to live by them. And I would I would have to conclude by uh, implication here, if uh, Eric is saying that uh, Jesus never told us to follow a book or collection of books, that Eric believes there's nothing that he has to follow from Jesus. Um, by implication, that's what Eric's arguing. Yeah, if they, I don't know if, if he would if, actually say How that. would we know what to do if we don't follow the writings of the inspired apostles and prophets? And Brad, would... Brad in Athens, Alabama, also uh, alludes to the fact that Jesus exhorted his followers to keep the law and the prophets in his day when they, the law, Old Testament law was still in effect. Jesus was encouraging his disciples. So, again, Jesus was telling people in that time they needed to follow a collection of books. He told us in this day and age we need to follow a collection as well. And so we appreciate all those comments. Number two on Eric's list, that loving is better than religious obligation. Members of the Church of Christ hate the fact that loving is better than religious obligation. Um, Well, loving actually, Randy points out that loving is actually, actually is a religious obligation. Uh, Let's see, Randy says uh, what's being said in the verse that, that uh, Eric referenced Mark 12, verse 33 we might read that, by the way. We didn't read Mark twelve thirty three. Have you got it? Mark twelve thirty. Yeah. Well, I don't want to quote it here without. Uh, let, let somebody me, got it. Let me turn to it. We we should at least reference the verse that he cited there. And he Eric said, "Loving is better than religious obligation." Mark twelve thirty three, which says, uh, "And to love him with all the heart, with all the understanding, with all the soul, and with all the strength, and to love his neighbor as himself is more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices." So Jesus said that, and so Eric concludes from that, that loving is better than religious obligation. But Randy points out what is being said in the verse is that meeting religious obligations without love negates the good of obeying. It's the foundation, but and we have to have obedience Paul as well. Said, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13, the first three verses, that you could do all sorts of things. You could, you could do all kinds of, give gifts, do wonderful deeds of charity and so forth, but if you don't have love... Uh, then you're not. It's not going to count for anything. Jason says loving is part of our religious obligation. If Jesus said that if we love Him, we will keep His commandments, and we don't obey what Jesus commanded, we do not truly love Him. Our love is shown by our actions. If someone says that he knows God but does not obey His commandments, he is a liar, and the truth is not in him. First John chapter two verse four. Satan has done a sly thing in making people believe that obeying the commandments of God and teaching others to do the same is a sin. To believe that teaching a strict observance of the law is sinful makes Jesus sin. Jesus told the Pharisees they were to obey the law fully, not just pick and choose what they wanted to follow. In Matthew 23, 23, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith. These ought you to have done without leaving the others undone. Is Jesus not saying that we need to fulfill all of our religious obligations? And he references Matthew 28, verse 20. Yeah, I was just going to say, Jacob, that the passage there in Matthew twenty three twenty three, uh, you know, he's saying that he's faulting them for having omitted what he says a weightier matters, judgment, mercy, faith, and you, you could extend that, you know, love. But he's saying you, you know, you should have all, you, you also have to continue with this tithing business, which 
which I think uh, Eric would consider a religious obligation, Jesus is putting them on par with each other. Exactly right. Uh, James here in Columbia, Tennessee, just says loving is a religious obligation. There's no separation but given in the scriptures. You can't separate love and obedience, love and, and commandment. They, they all go together. Uh, Scott says, uh, love is important, but even Jesus taught that we are to live a principle-centered life, which will put us at odds with our parents and siblings, etc., uh, Matthew 10:35. Not many things appear to be more unloving uh, than to stand at odds with your family on matters of faith, yet Jesus predicted it would happen and said it is okay. It is to be expected. That's right. That, in other words, I'm supposed to love my parents, but fulfilling my obligations to the Lord and taking a stand for his truth is even more important than loving my parents. So um, Scott makes a good observation there. Marcus says we must always keep the word love in context in the Bible. This point was no different when Paul in 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 13, apart from love, there is no profit even if a person keeps every law. The text says it is a commandment to love him, which is God. How does a person love God when he does not keep the commandments? John 14, verse 21. One more real quick before we go to break, Jacob, on that question, and we'll have to wrap up question two here about uh, the idea that loving is better than religious obligation. We believe in loving, and we believe in religious obligation. They go hand in hand. Notice what Jim in Somerset said. He said, this question seems self-defeating. If Jesus commanded love, doesn't that make it a religious obligation? The, the furthermore, this whole passage of Scripture sh- shows quotes from the Old Testament as authoritative. So, uh, I think we good. need to read Brad as well. Okay. Uh, he says that the, when uh, Eric says that loving is better than religious obligation, referencing Mark 12:33, Brad answers that is a total misunderstanding of this passage. Jesus wasn't dealing with religious obligation; he was dealing with hypocrisy and grandstanding. When Jesus agreed with this scribe's response, he was not saying that you should choose between loving your neighbor and offering a sacrifice. He was agreeing with the lawyer that you should act so as not to need to offer sacrifices. The scribes and Pharisees were hypocrites, Matthew 23. But they frequently made a show of how pious they were in their long prayers, Mark 14, uh, Mark 12:40, tithing and fasting, Luke 18, verse 12, and such. He was basically saying that it doesn't matter how many sacrifices you offer if you don't love God and your neighbor. Instead of choosing between two commandments, we are to do both. Matthew 23, verse 23. All right. We're late for a break. Let's go to a break, and uh, when we come back, we'll continue the discussion. We're and gonna... keep looking at that list. If you haven't seen that list before, the list is on the website page where you click to listen tonight. You can see what we're talking about, this list that listener Eric has sent in of things we supposedly hate. Now, we, we talked about, he said here that that loving is better than religious obligation. Let's make sure that we understand we love Eric. That's exactly. why we're talking about this. In fact, we hadn't pointed this out, but we actually invited Eric to be on the program with us tonight. He declined our invitation to do so, but, I mean, we're open to this. We're we not, want to, we're we're not want, trying to run Eric down. And we're not mad at Eric. We want to be in unity with Eric. We want to have unison. The only way we can do that is to understand the scriptures correct, and then we can have true unity like Jesus and the Father have unity like he wants from us. And so that's what we want. Right. And, you know, we're not here to, to, to try to make a spectacle of Eric. We're here to, to really consider. I mean, we need to seriously consider these things that he said and, and look to the Bible and see, you know, how the Bible compares to these points. Right. We're not we, we want to see what the, what it says. about. All these right. Things. We'll take a break and go after this. Stay tuned. The virtual Bible study continues right after these messages. Enjoying the virtual Bible study? Email a friend during this break and tell them to join in on the discussion. There's more exciting Bible study after this commercial. Hello, everyone. I'm Britt Haynes. I'm a member of the College View Church of Christ. A lot of people in the religious world today tell us that as long as our heart is right and we truly love God, we can do whatever we want in our service to Him. They say that what we do doesn't matter because God is only interested in our heart. I believe they have it all wrong. True, God is interested in our hearts, but he's also interested in our actions. One reason why is because our actions describe the true condition of our heart. This is what Jesus taught in Matthew 12, verse 34, when he said, For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaketh. So I believe that if we are doing whatever we want to in our service and are not serving God exactly like he has asked, then our heart is not right before God. The members of the College View Church of Christ are committed to making sure that both our hearts and our actions are pleasing to God. If you're interested in doing the same, we encourage you to join us for worship this Sunday morning at 9.30 a.m. Hi, my name is Hunter. I'm 11 years old, and I love listening to the Virtual Bible Study. Use your Internet connection for something good. Listen to the Virtual Bible Study every week. Now, back to the program. 
And welcome back to the virtual Bible study tonight. Take a minute to be a part of it by sending your emails to questions at collegeview.com or by dialing 877-381-4567. Number three on Eric's list, the New Testament never claims to be perfect, he says, and we hate that. We hate the fact that the New Testament doesn't claim to be perfect, but we say that it is perfect. I assume that's what he means that we hate. But, you know, in to the best of my understanding, the Bible, the New Testament in particular, does claim to be the perfect inspired word of God. James 1.25, James here in Columbia, Tennessee, said, what about the expression perfect law of liberty, James 1 verse 25? It what, calls itself a perfect law of What liberty. about the fact that uh, the scriptures claim to be inspired by God, and if they're not perfect, then we say that God is not perfect. He hasn't given us a perfect law. Uh, that's what Jason uh, in Pennsylvania referenced Second Timothy three sixteen and seventeen uh, is the New Testament scripture inspired by God. If it's from God, it should be perfect. If it isn't perfect, it isn't from God and shouldn't be followed. That's I don't understand. I don't understand how you why you'd put any credence in the scripture if it's not perfect. How how can we then tell which parts are worthy to be followed and which parts are just representative of imperfection? I mean, if it's not thoroughly perfect, then it becomes a useless worthless. thing. Exactly right. And. Uh, I guess by implication we'll have to assume that Eric believes that the New Testament is not inspired, not from God, if it's not perfect. Right, and, and you know, if, the, if, the, if the scriptures aren't perfect, then that would imply that there would be a need to find authority or religious information elsewhere. But the Bible uh, clearly teaches that there is no other source uh, for you know religious... Uh, would Eric say that we get religious authority from an imperfect man rather than God's inspired word? Well, I think I think if we could question Eric in person, he would say that the the reason he's making this point is because we say that the Bible is perfect and completely authoritative. We don't need anything else. And I think if we could talk to Eric personally, we'd find out that he thinks that there are other sources of authority in religion. For instance, the church or the organization of the church can can pass edict and therefore be authoritative to direct our religious affairs, which we deny because we have the perfect New Testament. Uh, Marcus in Louisville said, uh, he, he referenced 1 Corinthians 13, 10 through 13, which speaks about the perfect or complete revelation coming, and it's called that which is perfect. Uh, 1 Corinthians 13, verses 10 through 13, good point from Marcus. Number four on Eric's list, that we hate the fact that Jesus ate with prostitutes. You know, I don't hate that. Do you hate that? Well, I don't know that he did. It, I, I can't find it where it says. Well, I, I know he ate with sinners, and he, so that could include prostitutes, but it wouldn't bother me if he did. You know, I don't I don't hate that thought. I know that Jesus said he came to seek and save that which was lost. Jesus came to to find sinners and to, to lead them to repentance and salvation. Uh I don't know why I don't know why Eric thinks that, that would be a thing that we would hate. We know that as as you said, Jacob, I I, I don't know of any specific reference that mentions Jesus eating with prostitutes. He ate with sinners, so he might as well eat with know, prostitutes. There, there is an episode in Luke 7, beginning verse 36, where a woman came and anointed his feet, and the and the self-righteous Pharisees said, if he knew what kind of woman she was, if he he wouldn't he wouldn't associate with her, basically. And the implication is that she may have been a prostitute, but it doesn't say that. It doesn't spell that out. So I'm not sure where Eric would go to put his finger on a passage that says Jesus ate with prostitutes. But we're not denying that Jesus did associate with sinners for the purposes of leading them to repentance and uh, salvation. And that that's not something that we hate. And uh, many of our listeners echo those comments. Anthony? Right. Uh, Stephen says, uh, you know, that the, Eric didn't provide a scripture for this, but uh, he says that in Matthew 9, uh, 10 through 13, where it says, uh, chapter 12 there, you know, they that be whole need not a physician, but they that are sick. So how are you going to you know, reach out to sinners for that? But uh, I'm kind of uh, extrapolating there from Stephen's answer, but... And Stephen or Eric may be saying that we think we're too good to eat pro- with prostitutes. We're not too good to eat with sinners. We eat with sinners. Uh, well, we all are sinners, yeah. in fact. Right. Uh, uh, Scott mentions that Jesus ate with tax gatherers, proud folk, self-centered folk, arrogant folk, ignorant folk. Such were some of us, but we have been washed. He references 1 Corinthians 16 by allusion there. All right, let's go on to number five on Eric's list. Uh, we hate the fact that Paul included his personal opinion in supposed scripture he references 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 12. Let me read that because we need to reference. Now, read, that, read again what he says that we hate. Christ, uh, he says the Church of Christ hates the fact that Paul included his personal opinion in supposed scripture. 
1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 12. Now, Paul had been teaching about the marriage relationship, and he had specifically instructed against divorce uh, for any cause. And he says, uh, he had just, well, let me read, 1 Corinthians 7, verse 10, To the married I command, yet not I but the Lord, let not the wife depart from her husband, but and if she depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband, and let not the husband put away his wife. Now notice, he said, To the married I command, yet not I but the Lord. You can find places where the Lord said that. For instance, Matthew 5, 32, Matthew 19, 9. Paul was basically reciting what Jesus had said concerning marriage and divorce. Then, just immediately following that, he says, But to the rest speak I, not the Lord. If any brother hath a wife that believeth not, and she be pleased to dwell with him, let him not put her away. And the woman which hath a husband that believeth not, and he be pleased to dwell with her, let him not leave. Let her not leave him. Paul begins to address a situation that Jesus had not personally addressed while he was here on earth. The idea of a believer married to an unbeliever. Jesus, you can search through the, the the personal teachings of Jesus in the gospel accounts, and you won't find Jesus addressing that subject. So Paul Paul recited what Jesus taught, and then he says, "Now this is something that Jesus had not previously personally taught, but I'm telling you." Now don't forget what well, the passage we, still in the same epistle, First Corinthians 14, at verse 37. Paul said, if any man think himself to be a prophet or spiritual, let him acknowledge that the things that I write unto you are the commandments of the Lord. This is as much the commandment of the Lord as something that Jesus had personally said. But the explanation of that passage is, Paul is just adding to, by inspiration, adding to information Jesus had already personally supplied. But that's in line with what Jesus promised when the Holy Ghost comes. He said he will guide you into all truth. All right. Brad in Athens, Alabama, says he did give his opinion, but it's in verses 25 and 26. Verse 12 was not Paul's opinion, but rather a command that Jesus himself had not already given while on earth. Paul's command in verse 10 and 11 had already been given by Jesus himself in Matthew 19. But in verse, verse 12 and following, uh, Paul was giving instruction on something Jesus had not commented on during his ministry, even if verse 12 were Paul's opinion as an inspired epistle, apostle, his instruction with the authority of Jesus Christ himself. His authority is with the author, his instruction is with the authority of Jesus Christ himself, Matthew 18, 18. Right. And so uh, Brad does reference verses 25 and 26 where Paul says it is his judgment. It's not uh, a command, but his judgment. And and he said he said that he didn't say that it was his own opinion. He said he actually had the Lord's approval for saying these things. If you back up there in chapter seven, First Corinthians chapter seven, probably a more difficult verse to explain than the one that that Eric referenced was in verse six of First Corinthians seven, where Paul says, "I speak this by permission and not of commandment." But and that verse is sometimes misused. Paul had just talked about husbands and wives abstaining from from sexual relationships with one another for a time of prayer and fasting. And he says, basically, he says, this is being allowed. You're not commanded to do that. I state this by permission. In other words, you're permitted to do that, but not commanded to do that. There's no place where it's commanded that husbands and wives should abstain from sexual relationship for prayer and fasting. Paul's saying it is permitted. You can do that if you choose for just a limited time. But you're not commanded to do that. And that's the explanation of verse 6. I actually think if I was Eric, I would have referenced verse 6 instead of verse 12. But none of those constitutes Paul's personal opinion. And and when Paul stated these things, he stated them as the commandments of the Lord. All right. Let's go on to question 6 quickly before our break. Eric says that members of the Church of Christ hate the fact that the New Testament never claims that people are currently burning in hell. Anthony? Well, we have some response from our readers. Uh, Jason says uh, that there is torment in Hades, uh, according to Luke 16, 23 through 24, but that that's not necessarily the same as burning in hell. Uh, and that is, it says, uh, in being in torments in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. Uh, then he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. And send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But we that's don't not, see that tied to eternal That's not punishment. eternal hell. That's Hades. That's right. torment in Hades. Hades is the abode of departed spirits, the place where those wait the final resurrection and judgment. In that place, according to that passage in Luke 16, there's a place of comfort in Abraham's bosom. There's a place of torment. 
And that rich man was in that place of torment. Brad says, I agree. Nobody's burning in hell. They're in torment, yes, Luke 16, 23, but not in hell. And for clarification, uh, the scriptures don't even teach that Satan's in hell right right now, correct? I think that's right. He's going to be cast into it's hell. It's reserved for him. But yeah. uh, not that, that there's so there would be any any being in, in hell at this not point. Not in eternal hell. There's a difference between torment in Hades and eternal hell. We don't we're not teaching anybody's in eternal hell, but we are teaching their people at this instant. In the, well, I don't know. See, we got to be careful about assigning time to the the to beyond the grave and it, it, beyond the grave. Time doesn't doesn't currently. Can you say currently? There are people in torment in in a place of torment now as they await the final judgment and and their assignment to then eternal hell. We're halfway through, but we're not halfway through Eric's question, so we'll have to go faster on the other side of the break. We'll take a break, and we'll wait for your comments on the other side at questions at collegeu.com or 877-381-4567. Stay tuned. We'll be right back after this. Did you hear what they just said? Call in during this break and let everyone know what you think. The virtual Bible study continues after this announcement. This is Greg Gwynn with this week's Bullet Point. All godly parents are concerned about bringing up their children to be good, God-fearing people. In fact, we're commanded to do so in Ephesians 6, verse 4. There are lots of negative influences in the world that make this an increasingly difficult job. We worry about the impact of the schools, peer pressure, wickedness in the media, and so forth. In the face of all these forces that seek to ruin our kids, how can we succeed in teaching and training them to do what's right? While there are many scriptural principles that might be mentioned here, we want to emphasize just one, consistency. Being consistent is an essential key in bringing up faithful children. An obvious area where this consistency needs to be seen is in the matter of attendance. If you allow your kids to miss the worship services in order to be at a ball game, you're teaching them that the ball game is more important than the Lord. If you let them skip the assemblies for school functions, band trips, dramas or plays, or going camping, fishing or hunting, in all of these ways you are demonstrating that there are things that are more important than God. If you fail to worship when you're traveling or on vacation, you're showing them that serving God is something you do only when it's convenient. If you let them take part-time jobs that interfere with their attendance, you're giving them a clear sign that work and career considerations are higher in priority than spiritual things. Many parents who are violating the principles stated here will scoff at these warnings. Yet the personal experiences of many people, as well as the plain teachings of God's Word, indicate that this is the truth. Joshua had it right when he said, As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Joshua 24, verse 15. There would be no compromise in Joshua's family. He would lead them in a consistent, faithful path. Let's imitate his example of consistency. That's this week's bullet point. Think about it. I am Nestor Sanchez from Arica, Chile, in South America. And I love to listen to the virtual Bible study. And this moment, I invite you to participate in this program, too. Gracias. Quit checking your email. The commercials are over, and the virtual Bible study is ready to roll. Take it away, guys. And we're back. Welcome back to the program. We're waiting to hear from you at 877-381-4567. Questions at collegeu.com. As we look at Eric's list, again, you can find that on our website, collegeu.com, or the virtual Bible study. Dot com. You know, Jacob, one of the things we should point out, we've always told people, you know, if you disagree with us, we'll move you to the head of the line. We, Eric we got it tonight. He got the head of the line. We're spending the whole program talking about the things that were written by someone who disagrees with us. We, when you, when we're asking for your participation, we're not expecting everyone to conform immediately to what we're saying. We're all trying to come to an understanding of the Word of God. We're not saying we've got it all figured out. We're, we're still searching and working and studying, and we hope everybody else will, too. And that's why we're asking for input uh, sure. from our listeners. And Eric's input is valuable to us because it gives us the opportunity to check what we believe and make sure it is in, uh, in uh, agreement with the Scriptures. Number seven on his list tonight that we're looking at is that Paul quoted pagans. We hate the fact that Paul quoted pagans in Acts 17, verse 28. Paul was preaching in, in Athens in uh, Acts chapter 17. He was given the opportunity to preach to a bunch of the idol worshipers in the city of Athens, Greece. And in the course of that sermon that he preached, he said concerning God, In him we live and move and have our being, as certain also of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. So Paul did make reference to pagans in that sermon that he preached. But, you know, I don't find that to be such a remarkable thing. I think any of us might do that. Now, Paul Paul was being instructed by the, I think he spoke those words by inspiration. The Holy Spirit directed him to make this kind of an argument. Here's the kind of argument it is. 
let's say that I'm trying to make a point on some moral issue. And I'm trying to convince you, Jacobs, of some moral issue. And I say, even, well, even Bill Clinton knows that you're not supposed to do that. In other words, I'm not saying that Bill Clinton's a moral man. And I'm not giving any credence to his moral standing. But I'm just saying, even immoral, basically I'm saying even immoral people understand this truth. And that's basically the argument Paul was making there, that even the pagan philosophers and poets of of the Greeks understood certain principles about deity and our and our uh, being created by deity. So to me, that's that's not a, a very challenging thing at all. I understand that completely. All right. Uh, Brad says that he makes this points. Uh, if the pagans would agree with the truth, he would make the same point. Uh, Marcus says uh, this shows that Paul was a great intellectual. Paul uh, says test all things in First Thessalonians chapter five verse twenty one, and uh, James says that Paul wouldn't have quoted it if it were not the truth. I see no problem with that. Scott said, "Why would it bother anyone that he used quotations that unbelievers were familiar with to help them see the truth? That's what, it was an illustration to see the truth." You know, I'm seeing a recurring theme here in Eric's questions. It seems that Eric really discounts scripture and is really challenging scripture as being our authority in our life. He says Jesus said, never told us to follow a book or collection of books, that Paul included his personal opinion in supposed scripture, that the New Testament never claims to be perfect, that Paul quoted pagans. Seems to be a, a theme here in Eric's questioning that he's challenging scriptures. We're trying to submit to them, but yet Eric is challenging, saying they're not perfect, we're not supposed to follow them. And that there's pagan writings in there that makes totally the, the Bible totally invalid. Well, the next the next point that he makes is right in that same vein. He says we, as members of the Church of Christ, hate the fact that the Book of Jude quotes the Assumption of Moses and the Book of Enoch, two sources that are not Scripture. He says. Now, let's look to the Book of Jude real quick to see the the verses that he is making reference to. In the book of Jude, Jude makes a statement in verse 9, Jude verse 9, Michael the archangel, when contending with the devil, he disputed about the body of Moses, durst not bring against him a railing accusation, but said, the Lord rebuked thee. Now, Eric is saying that that comes from an ancient writing. Sometimes it's referred to as an apocryphal book, but it's not one of the apocryphal books that's in the Catholic Bible. The, The Assumption of Moses And then in the same book of Jude, verse 14, it says, Enoch also, the seventh from Adam, prophesied of these, saying, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment upon all and to convince all that are ungodly among them, and so on it goes. He says that quote is from the book of Enoch, another book sometimes referred to as an apocryphal book um, that... uh, um, it's not in the Catholic Bible. It's not included in those those books that are in the Catholic Bible. Um, but those are ancient writings. He says Jude is quoting basically from what we claim are uninspired sources. So he said basically, again, it's another attack on the inspiration of the Scriptures. Well, it sounds like pretty much the same thing that we just talked about with Paul. If Let's just say that those sources you know, were pagan sources. Just because Jude quotes them, maybe they help him make the point, just like we said it, in Paul's case back in Acts. The other the other thing that's not proved is how do we know that that's where Jude got those quotes? Well, you know, you know those quotes, those quotes, if, if it happens to be so that the book of Enoch or the Assumption of Moses correctly stated something that was also true by inspiration and they just and, and those two things happen to correspond or harmonize at that point it doesn't prove first of all okay so what you're saying is if i wrote a book and that said in the beginning god created the heaven and the earth and you wrote a book that said in the beginning god created the heaven and the earth to say that you're quoting me would be invalid you're actually quoting the original you're quoting the fact that god revealed in genesis chapter one right right and there's also i did a little research i don't know if this is correct but what i found is that the assumption of moses there are no manuscripts available from that book anymore, that work anymore, so there's no way to know if Jude was actually quoting the Assumption of Moses. We don't have uh, original manuscripts. And the book of Enoch, uh, referenced in Jude 14 and verses, verses 14 and 15, is questionable because the book of Enoch was written over a long period of time, and it may even be true that the book of this part of the book of Enoch was written after the book of Jude, so it is possible that the book of Enoch was actually quoting Jude rather than the other way around. 
the uh, the references that Eric presents here are not conclusive. Again, and, but what it is, it's 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 an effort to cast doubt on the inspiration of Scripture. I think pretty clearly. Uh, Marcus basically asked the same question we ask. How can you be sure that he's quoting from those sources? Uh, Randy said as soon as Jude quoted those books, if in fact he did, I would add that, if in fact he did, the words he quoted became Scripture. Uh, uh, James in Columbia writes, I don't hate this fact. He quoted something that was true. And Brad says if Jude was an inspired writer, then we may have confidence that what he wrote concerning both the body of Moses and the prophecy of Enoch actually happened. Jude knew that these events took place in the same way that Peter knew that Noah was a preacher, 2 Peter 2, 5, and that Lot was vexed or tormented by the wickedness of Sodom, 2 Peter 2, verse 8. The Holy Spirit revealed it. The fact that some uninspired writing mentions or records the same event neither gives any more credence to the uninspired writing nor casts doubt on the inspiration of Jude or any of the other inspired writers. I think Brad is dead on right there. All right, let's go on to number nine. Eric says we hate the fact that the New Testament never teaches congregationalism. Are you are you up to speed on congregationalism? Well, I'm not exactly. I have an idea of what Eric Con- is referencing. Congregationalism is the idea that we teach that each congregation is to be local, independent, autonomous, self-governing, that there is to be no hierarchy of church uh, government. And if I understand Eric, I understand Eric that he is he's a Catholic, and so he's basically trying to defend the the Catholic notion of an extreme hierarchy of church government leading all the way to the Pope in Rome. And the and New it, Testament never teaches that. Well, he's saying the New Testament never teaches what we believe, local, independent, autonomous, local congregations. But uh, Brad says it, it certainly never teaches anything else. The only church government that the New Testament talks about is local elders, Acts 20, 28, 1 Timothy 3, and the only overseer above them all, Jesus Christ, 1 Peter 5, verses 1 through 3. That's exactly right. James says uh, that it does teach congregationalism. Peter told elders to tend their flock, 1 Peter 5, implying that there are multiple flocks or congregations. And you know, we can also look at Titus 1, 5, uh, Paul says, for this cause I left thee in Crete, that thou should uh, set in order the things that are wanting, ordain elders in every city. So there are obviously multiple multiple congregations Acts here. Acts 14.23 says that Paul, on at the end of his first missionary journey, appointed elders in every church. So we believe that there is o- that is the only pattern of the New Testament. In fact, I would say one of the greatest challenges that the Catholics could possibly have is any attempt, any attempt to scripturally justify the hierarchy of church government that they practice. Number 10 on Eric's list. We supposedly hate that the New Testament never gives a list of canon of what should be contained in the New Testament. Well, that's right. I mean, if he's if he's wants to say, you know, find me the passage that says, here are the rules that you can use to judge whether a book is inspired by God or not and should be considered as such, I can't point him to that passage. But we understand that, that inspired writings have certain characteristics. In other words, if, 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 a, if a writing is obviously contradictory to itself or to other known inspired works, then it can't be inspired. There are certain rules like that that we would employ. Um, the fact of the matter is that when the inspired writers of the New Testament wrote, before the ink was dried on the page, those writings were, re- were regarded as inspired scripture. It's interesting that um, um, Paul wrote and quoted Luke's gospel and called it scripture. You can compare. By the way, you might want to compare 1 Timothy 5, verse 18, and Luke 10, verse 7. And there you find Luke, I mean, uh, Paul quoting Luke, calling Luke's writing scripture. Peter mentions Paul's writing and calls them scripture, 2 Peter 3, verse 16. And so when as soon as these inspired writers of the first century wrote their works, Christians who received them immediately regarded them as the inspired word of God. They were passed around. There was there's even indication that there began to be compilations of these writings as early as 115 A.D. There were it was not the decision of men uh, or some council. You know, there was a church council called in Carthage in A.D. 397 to supposedly settle the the question of the canonicity of the new testament all that council did was confirm what was already believed by the vast majority of christians as to which books were in fact written by inspired apostles of jesus christ 
so no, there's not a there's not a specific text that says here are the rules, but the rules are understood, and the Christians of the, of that early era understood which books were inspired. And number 11 on his list, Eric continues to challenge the scriptures where he says, we hate the fact that Jesus supposedly quotes something that isn't in scripture. He references John 7, 38. In John, let's, let's read that verse. In John 7, verse 38, Jesus said, um, he that believeth on me as the scripture hath said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. The problem is that there's not a specific Old Testament passage that says it verbatim like that i think that's what uh, i think that's the point that eric is is referencing but i found several old testament prophets in general that gave the the notion of that it might reference isaiah 58 11 zechariah 14 verse 8 joel chapter 3 verse 18 scott says jesus quote may not have been rendered word for word but the concept of those who put their trust in god will be like fountains of water is there the faith of the faithful will help quench the spiritual thirst of themselves and their descendants to come. I think Scott is right so on. So is Eric saying that Jesus was lying? He'd have to say that if he, if he says that Jesus is quoting that something that's not in Scripture, but Jesus says that the Scripture says it, then Eric's saying Jesus is a liar. Well, that would have to be so, wouldn't it? Is he saying Jesus told a lie when he said this is what the Scriptures teach? Jesus, but the, the problem is Jesus, Jesus wasn't saying this is a verbatim quote from Scripture. He's saying this is the gist of Scripture. This is what Scripture has promised. This is what the Old Testament Scriptures promised to those who believe on me. Eric is finding himself in a pickle here because he says we can't believe the Word of God. We can't believe God that he has revealed himself to us in the Scriptures. We can't believe Jesus because Jesus just lied in John chapter 7, verse 38, according to Eric. Before we go this last break, Jacob, let me read Brad. One possibility here is we have an inaccurate translation of the grammar of the passage. Perhaps there should not have been a comma between believes on me, and that would make it, as the Scripture has said, modify the belief, not the supposed code. The other possibility is that Jesus was paraphrasing, not quoting. I might say, Brad says, I might say, quote, the Bible says to discipline your children. That's not a quote, just a summary. There are several verses in the Old Testament that talk about flowing water in a figurative manner. I think the latter part of his explanation is the right one. Jesus is just saying the prophet said, if you believe in me, it'll be like rivers of water flowing out of your belly. And and there is that gist in the prophets. All right, one more break. We'll go to the top of the hour. Get in now with your questions or comments. Stay tuned. We're right back after this. Are you listening? There's going to be a test on this stuff. Stay tuned. The virtual Bible study will be right back after this. Hi. My name is Mike Johnson. I'm a member here at the College of You Church of Christ. Have you ever heard someone say that the members of the Church of Christ are too legalistic? Generally, people say this when we say that we must be careful to follow all the commands that God has given us. When we say, God says we must do this, or God doesn't command us to do that, people respond with, the members of the Church of Christ are too legalistic. Well, while it may be impossible to know exactly what people mean when they make this accusation, if they are accusing us of being legalistic because we say that we should follow all the instructions that God has given us, then that accusation is correct. But let me ask you this. Which of the commands that God has given us should we ignore? Can we pick and choose which commands we follow, or must we follow them all? Jesus said we have to follow all the commands of God when he said in Luke chapter 6, verse 46, And why call ye me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? We want to call Jesus our Lord, so we try to follow all the commandments that he has given us. We don't in any way think that following God's commands earns our salvation, but we do think it is necessary to be pleasing to him. Here at the College of You Church of Christ, we're trying to follow every command that God has given us. If, as a result, some people call us legalistic, then so be it. We think it's what God calls being righteous. My name is Roger Toombs, and me and my wife love to listen to the virtual Bible study on Thursday nights. And whatsoever ye do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by him. Colossians 3:17. Now, back to the program. And we're back. We've got lots of ground to cover and not much time to cover it. We'll go on to question or item number 12 on Eric's list. He says, we hate the fact that baptizing the household of someone would include baptizing babies. He references 1 Corinthians 11, verse 16. To answer Eric's argument, let me ask you a question. Corinthians, first, by the way, 1 Corinthians 1.16, Paul said he baptized the household of Stephanus. And then Eric would say that would include babies. Let me ask you a question, Anthony. If uh, Paul had baptized your household, would that include babies? No, unfortunately Dad, if not. Dad, if he baptized your household? I hope not. <laughs> it wouldn't include babies in my household either. And that's so, what, by the way, that's what uh, Marcus says. Does every household include babies? Mine doesn't. That's what Marcus said. Uh, and... I think others had the same idea. Uh, Randy said, my household includes no babies. 
in in reference to this, and I think that the point is made here. Let's see who made this. Uh, in First Corinthians one verse sixteen, that that Eric referenced, I, Paul said, "I baptized the household of Stephanus." But what's interesting is that in Acts eighteen, it's uh, where this was in Corinth, where Stephanus lived in Corinth. It says, Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all his household, and many of the Corinthians hearing believed and were baptized. Who was baptized in Corinth? Those who heard and believed. Babies can't hear and believe. There weren't, there weren't any babies in Stephanus's household because everybody baptized in Corinth was one who heard and believed. You could say Randy mentions the same thing about the Philippian jailer in Acts 16. Everyone in his household heard and believed. I could, using Eric's logic, I could say that the Stephanus's household included people who had heard and did not believe, had denied the fact that Jesus was the Son of God. I can make the same assumption. I mean, he's making an assumption it had people that, that had babies in it. I can make the assumption it had people who were non-believers and they baptized them. I could easily as I could as easily argue that the household of Stephanus had monkeys in it, and Paul baptized monkeys. I mean, it yeah. didn't prove anything. You can't prove that. Number thirteen. He says that the Church of Christ hates that 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 10 through 15 teaches that even supposed heretics like Martin Luther are going to be saved. All right, listen, we've got to look at that passage real quick to see what he's talking about. Um, Paul said, 1 Corinthians 3, 10, According to the grace of God which is given unto me, as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, and another buildeth thereon. But let every man take heed how he buildeth thereon. For another foundation can no man lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if any man build up, uh, build upon the foundation gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work abide, he shall, uh, which he hath built thereon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. Eric is arguing that he's saying the work there is what he teaches. And that if you teach things that are false, those things will be destroyed, but you won't be lost for having taught what was false. Uh, that's just really not true. Um, I think that what we're seeing here, uh, um, that he's talking about those that are converted. He's talking about the work. He, he, he Earlier in the, in the uh, chapter, verse 6, I planted a pile of water, but God gave the increase. So let's say, Jacob, you go out and teach some and convert some. Anthony, you go out and teach some and convert some, and I do too. You, Jacob, out of 10 people you converted, only three of them remained faithful. Anthony, out of 20 that you converted, 16 remained faithful. Out of five I converted, two remained faithful. Well, what about those that, that are lost? Well, we're going we're gonna to feel the loss of that. People that we taught and converted and they didn't remain faithful, we're going to feel lost. Now, we're not going to be lost because they're lost, but we're going to feel the loss in that. Uh, it, it, for those who remain faithful, there's a reward in that. But he's Taking, talk- taking he, Eric's interpretation, you can teach and practice anything you want, and you'll be saved. It doesn't matter what you teach, what you believe, what you practice. You can do any of anything you want, and you'll still be saved. Isn't that what he's arguing there? Yeah. Jim in, in uh, Somerset, Kentucky wrote, I went back to 1 Corinthians 3, 10 through 15, but my version doesn't say anything about Martin Luther or other heretics. It certainly doesn't say all men will be saved. It's talking about our work, and I think Jim's right on that. All right. Let's go on to question or to item number 14 on Eric's list. Number 14, members of the Church of Christ hate that sola scripture is not caught, taught in the New Testament. Again, he's challenging the New Testament as being our authority. He says we hate the fact that the Bible doesn't teach that we should only use the New Testament. Sola Scriptura is a Latin uh, expression meaning by Scripture alone. And it's the assertion that the Bible as God's word is self-authenticating, clear uh, to the rational reader, and is its own interpreter and is sufficient of itself to be the final authority on the on the, what Christians should believe and practice. That's what sola scriptura means to any who might not understand what he's saying there. Is the scripture all sufficient? First, first Peter or Second Peter chapter one verse three says he hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness. Randy says I don't agree with his claim and references Second Timothy three sixteen and seventeen. Stephen says uh, that uh, how can we possibly hate something that is not there or that doesn't exist? If that is the case, it is impossible. However, I deny those allegations. Because of Revelation 22, 18 through 19, 2 Timothy 3, 16, and Colossians 3, verse 17. 
Um, Marcus references 1 Corinthians 13, 10, 2 Timothy 3, 16, 17, James 1, 25, Jude 3. Jude 3, by the way, which speaks of the faith once and for all delivered to the saints. Revelation 2, 18 and 19, don't add to or take from the scriptures. I think the Bible clearly does teach that it's all sufficient to our needs. Number 15, Eric says that the Church of Christ hates that Peter said some things written by Paul are hard to understand in 2 Peter chapter 2, or 2 Peter it's chapter 3, 15, 3, 15 and 16. Yeah, uh, that's missing in his post, but it's Second Peter 3, 15 and 16. What? I like what James and Columbia said. I'm glad to hear that they were hard for Peter. That gives me some hope. <laughs> All right. Uh, Brad in Athens, Alabama says, hard but not impossible. Also, some things, not all things, are hard to understand. I agreed with Peter's statement. I disagree with people who claim that the average person can't understand the Bible. It just isn't true. Randy says, I agree with Peter. There are some things Paul wrote hard to understand. So what's your point? That doesn't invalidate Paul's letters just because they're hard to understand. Again, Eric repeatedly challenges the scriptures, discounts them, says that we cannot rely on them. And uh, it's number 16 on his list that we're looking at tonight. Eric says we hate the fact that Paul had an out-of-body experience. He references 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 1 through 6. Eric needs to read 2 Corinthians chapter 12, 1 through 6 a little bit more carefully. Let's read it because it answers his objection exactly. 2 Corinthians 12, beginning verse 1, It is not expedient for me, doubtless to glory. I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. I knew a man in Christ above 14 years ago. Whether in the body I cannot tell or whether out of the body I cannot tell, God knoweth. Such a one caught up to the third heaven. I knew such a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I cannot tell. God knoweth how he was caught up into paradise and heard unspeakable words, which is not lawful for man to utter. Of such a one I will glory, yet of myself I will not glory, but in my affirmities. Paul's talking about himself there. I think all agree that Paul's talking about himself. Some some episode of revelation that Paul experienced. But he said he didn't know whether he was out of the body. How does Eric know that it was an out-of-the-body experience when Paul himself said more than once, I don't know if it was in the body or out of the and body. And if it was out of the body. So what? I don't. doesn't bother me. Does it bother you, Anthony? It doesn't bother me. You know, it, it, was a, it was a part of the process of God making a revelation to Paul. And the, the revelation itself, Paul's revelations, Paul's inspiration was miraculous. And so for him to have had a miraculous experience wouldn't challenge my faith in what he said or taught. You've got a couple emails there to look through. Uh, we'll uh, let you look at those real quick. So, but Anthony, repeatedly in Eric's uh, challenges tonight, we've seen the fact that he wants to discount the scriptures as being our authority. He's called Jesus a liar. He said that God is a liar by revealing things that are inaccurate. Um, certainly it is a bad position to find yourself in. Where do you go for guidance in this life if you can't trust God, you can't trust his son, you can't trust his word? We're set. We're left to just grope around in this world. Yeah, it's not a very uh, – doesn't paint a very uh, good picture there. I'm not sure where Eric would go for his authority, um, but you're right. It seems like the theme here is that, uh, you know, the, the scriptures are unreliable and uh, – which is interesting because you know we've made the point that some of the, several of these points seem to be referencing sort of Catholic doctrine, but as far as I know, uh, Catholics do believe that that what we have as a scripture is inerrant, inspired word. Well, of God. but they believe that they believe that it's not the sole source of authority. Correct. They believe right. that there are other sources of authority, and I think that that probably these attacks on the idea of the all sufficiency of the scripture and that the scripture may not even be conveyed to us accurately are are in the direction of saying we need more. We need the church to be able to speak authoritatively to us, which is what the Catholics believe. Let's go back to what we said about Eric, Dad, and our attitude towards Eric. We are not trying to be abusive to Eric or to beat up on him. We disagree with everything that he had written there, uh, but we do not uh, have any animosity towards Eric. We love Eric. We want Eric to admit and uh, submit to what the Bible teaches so that we can be in harmony. The yeah, only way we're going to be in religious harmony is to agree with what the Bible says. We don't have we don't have one bit of ill will or bad feeling toward Eric. I think he's misguided and mistaken, and I hope we were able to demonstrate that not based just upon our think so's or opinion, but based upon what we were able to show from the scriptures. And that's what we're trying to do here is to go back to the Bible and follow it in in uh, what it teaches and instructs. So that's what it's there for, and that's what we're trying to use it for. But again, I, what I hope this illustrates is that we we are seriously interested in searching and seeking we're we're not expecting people to agree on the virtual bible study eric obviously didn't agree and we spent a whole program talking about his disagreements with us uh 
If you disagree at any point in time, let us know Let's so we can study together and come to an understanding of the Scriptures. Jacob, uh, we're out of time, but I, I want to comment on the fact that we probably set a record tonight for having not gotten to so many comments from our participants. We've had to skip over tons of material, that the good material that people sent to us. And I, I hope that you all who are listening and who helped and sent in comments tonight will understand that we just couldn't get to them all. But you all did a lot of great study. And I hope it was beneficial to you. Even if we didn't get to read it on the air, I hope that you appreciated the, the challenge to search out these things and, and put together an answer. And some of you spent a considerable amount of time doing that. We appreciate you. We do benefit from having our, our faith challenged, and we're appreciative of the opportunity tonight. Anthony, thank you for taking time to be here tonight. And thanks for the invitation. It's always a pleasure. Excellent comments tonight. Dad, thank you for the time. Enjoyed it. And thank you all for listening. If you have any questions about the things that we discussed, especially you, Eric, we would still like to have this uh, discussion with you about the things that you've said. We could continue to discuss this over email, questions at collegeview.com. You can call the College U Church of Christ at any time, 877-381-4567. Check out our website to find out more about what we believe in practice. If you disagree with anything that we've said on the program tonight, please contact us and let us know why you disagree. We appreciate you listening to the program tonight. We hope that you'll make plans to be back here next week for another edition of the Virtual Bible Study. And in the meantime, we encourage you to put God first in your life, study His inspired word, the Bible, and live by it every day. You'll never regret it. Thanks for listening to the Virtual Bible Study, brought to you by the College View Church of Christ. The College View Church of Christ meets at 1618 Hampshire Pike in Columbia, Tennessee. If you are in the Columbia, Tennessee area, we encourage you to worship with the College View Church of Christ on Sunday mornings at 930 and on Sunday evenings at 6 o'clock. The College View Church of Christ also welcomes you to attend their Wednesday night Bible studies at 7 o'clock. If you have any questions about something that was said on tonight's broadcast or would like more information about the College College View Church of Christ, please call 931-381-4567. That number again, 931-381-4567. Or for more information on the internet, visit collegeview.com. Be sure to tune into the virtual Bible study this time next Thursday for another informative study of God's Word.